Part Three, Chapter Four of Canada's Hundred Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesey. Part Three, Chapter Four, Marching Up to Battle. We come to the evening of Thursday, September 26, the Feast of St. Cyprian. Our valley east of Neuville Vitasse is now crowded with troops. On many occasions during the past four years men have massed here, friend or enemy, for attack or defense, but never have they been so thickly, so openly congregated, nor will they be again, one may hazard, so long as history is in the making but until nightfall there is little sign on the surface. No place in the world is so empty as no man's land. It is populated only as is a desert plain by an advancing horde of locusts. They pass over, stripping every green thing as they go, and leave it even more waste than it was before. One recalls a little scene on the plateau just to the north a month ago. It was in the early afternoon, very hot and not a sign of life, except that shells were bursting around Monchy le Preux, and a tremendous uproar was in progress over the slope to the northeast, where the gray fog of our barrage was fast blotting out the dark outlines of Sart Wood, but not a sign of life. Suddenly, a shrill whistle, and immediately men in kilts covered with khaki aprons began tumbling up, literally from the bowels of the earth, from unexpected and unseen mouths of dugouts, so cunningly contrived by their late occupants, the Bosch, that they are quite unnoticeable even a few yards away, for they lie flush with the ground, with no betraying litter of excavation. They stumble up awkwardly, for they are laden down with their kit. The roll is called, a brief order, and they trudge off towards the smoke and the uproar, an extraordinary prosaic business. In a few minutes the little plateau is as empty again as a warren after the drumming alarm has sent the conies scurrying to cover. But presently a flare goes up from the wood. Then it was the matter of a platoon moving up from support into line. Now it is battalions, brigades, whole divisions, for the Corps is marching up to the great assault in the Canal du Nord. The days are growing short. The sun sets by six o'clock, and an hour after it is dark. In the gloaming is a scene of bustle and ordered confusion. The men laden down for the battle stand by in companies, waiting the word. A great concentration of artillery is going forward, and engineer trains are pushing up with pontoons and bridging materials steel and heavy timber. It has been our good fortune to dine, if such may be termed the hasty meal, in a bomb-proof shelter with the headquarters of a battalion whose adjutant is a particular friend. This battalion is to move into support, and next day its objective is Burlon Wood. We gladly accept an invitation to march up some way with it. It is a long and tedious march of some dozen miles over secondary roads 
and traversing ridge after ridge. The movement is diagonal because we pass southeast out of our own area into that of the Corps on our right to the jumping off line astride Inchi in Artois. The men whistle and sing in the best of spirits. They march by companies in column of four, strung out over the white road, tramp, tramp, tramp under a starlit sky. They march through the ghostly outlines of Wancourt, over a plank road our engineers have built across the Coyule, and so up the steep climb of Wancourt Ridge. Here the colonel, who is riding ahead, orders a halt, and the men have a ten-minute rest. They lie in the roadside, lighting cigarettes and chafing one another. On the left, the Arras-Cambrai road around Vies and Artois is being straight by distant enemy batteries, and occasionally he turns a searching fire on our battery positions. But it is nothing more than normal. Some bombing is going on north of the Scarp, but it is too dark for effective work, or our marching units would offer a conspicuous target. The night is mild with a southwest wind, the moon entering its last quarter. A late riser is hidden by scudding cloud. We watch the battalion march by. A fine sight, for it has been recruited up to strength. Steaming cook kettles bring up the rear, with a hot meal ready for the men. Then we turn back, for we too must be getting to our appointed place. It is after midnight when we start out. It has begun to rain, at first a drizzle and then a pitiless downpour, and it is pitch dark. But as we climb out of Cherisy on the road to Hindecourt, a stray enemy shell ignites one of our ammunition dumps and makes the going better. From Hindecourt the road runs over another ridge to Canicourt, whence it turns sharp south, past the Bois de Bouche, then southeast towards Inchy, becoming a little better than a track. Midway and on the right are Henley Copse and Bois de Inchy on an elevation but 2,000 yards from the village and commanding a view of the canal and battleground beyond. This road is a quagmire, lined with trenches facing south, part of the Hindenburg support line taken by us three weeks before. We are early and shelter for a time in a dripping dugout. Our troops, wearied by their long march, are crowded close in the trenches, in the woods, and behind the hill crests, with perhaps a tarpaulin stretched over their heads. But at four o'clock the rain stops, and a clearing sky promises a fine day. We walk on to the little hill crowned by the Bois de Inchy, where are some trenches and great variety of shell holes. Two of our battalions lie in this little wood. The troops are packed very close, the attacking divisions being squeezed into a perilously narrow frontage, because the line of assault is confined to less than a mile and a half on either side of Inchy in Artois, which indeed is the boundary between our fourth and first divisions. From where we stand, the canal is but 3,000 yards away, and the Bosch are holding this side of it, their line running due north from the northwest corner of Mwares, taken recently by the 17th Corps, midway between Inchy and the canal to west of Sans-les-Marquions. 
The first task of our infantry, therefore, is to overwhelm them and thus make good the west bank of the canal itself. But the limited area is also restricted in depth. Close behind is a great concentration of artillery, which is about to lay down what for its limited area is the most intense barrage of the war. All the Canadian Corps artillery is here, with 700 rounds to each gun, as well as a large number of Imperial heavies. The attack offers an extraordinary difficult problem. In the first place, the character of the initial barrage is in itself unique, for it is not the usual straightaway affair. Covering first the actual crossing of the Canal du Nord, it is designed then to protect the advance of the infantry on Burlon Wood on the one hand, while on the other it is to fan out in a wide sweep to the north until finally it shall return from the east on to the east bank of the canal, pinning in by its arc the enemy garrison holding that side of the canal as far north as Wassy le Verger. But that description hardly succeeds. It is more than that. The intention is that our first division, after crossing the canal, shall swing off first northeast, then north, and gradually close back onto the east side of the canal, thus taking from the rear the enemy garrison whose position from frontal attack west of the canal, as has been before explained, is impregnable. To provide a protective flank for this complicated operation, a stationary barrage is to be laid down some little distance east of and parallel to the canal. As the sweep of the infantry develops, a creeping barrage is to advance from south to north between the canal and this stationary barrage, the latter being lifted step by step as it is reached. It is extraordinarily ingenious and intricate to be understood best by reference to the barrage map itself. Starting with a barrage 3,000 yards in width, it is to fan out to 9,000 yards, changing form as it goes, and the least error in synchronization by either gunners or infantry must result in disaster to our own men. This calls for an unprecedented concentration of artillery in a restricted area. A little arc back of Inchi, so hazardous in itself that should the enemy discover it, and lay down a counter-barrage on these massed batteries, they must be wiped out. And yet it is a risk in all its gravity essential if the daring tactical maneuver as a whole is to have any prospect of success. In order to give our troops room to deploy for the attack, it is necessary to leave them a clear space of 2,000 yards deep west of the enemy line and our battery positions are therefore just that much further from the canal line. If adequate support is to be given our men as they advance up the long slope against Burlon Wood, our batteries must crowd down as close as possible to the canal so soon as its line is secure. From the canal our field batteries can command a range to the extreme limit of Burlon Wood. In order to accomplish this, a novel device has been determined upon and worked out in detail. This has been styled an extension barrage. Four brigades of our field batteries are all limbered up and at zero hour go off on the heels of the infantry. By six o'clock, 
40 minutes after the battle opens, these are actually in position on the west side of the canal, an hour ago in the enemy's hands. They thus extend the effective range from the kickoff line from 6,500 to 8,500 yards, and as a back battery goes out of action through exhaustion of its effective range, its area of fire is taken over by one of these front batteries, and then it too comes up to the canal bank. This maneuver is made possible by the very effective smoke barrage we lay down to screen enemy observation from Burlon Wood. But the final objective lies considerably east of Burlon Wood, and it therefore becomes the imperative task of our engineers to push practical crossings over the canal so that the guns can follow up the infantry. Three hours was the utmost they could be allowed for this task, for without efficient artillery support, our attacking lines are apt to be driven back down the slope, and in the final analysis the success of the operation devolves upon the engineers. But more even was required from the artillery than this intricate and fan-like barrage. Enemy counter-barrage work must be smothered, and for this purpose a great concentration of heavies was provided both of our own and Imperial batteries. For three weeks our artillery observation planes had been spotting the enemy's battery positions, and it had been found that he was continually moving his batteries about, having in all 105 battery positions in front of our attack. In order to smother these by our counter-battery work, it might be presumed it would be necessary to concentrate fire on every one of them, an impossible task. The problem was, in fact, in practice, solved in a brilliant fashion. Immediately the battle opened, our observers flew low over the enemy positions, reporting by wireless not where his batteries were, but what positions were empty thus enabling our artillery to concentrate their fire on occupied positions only, with what success will be seen. There are always tense minutes before zero. It is a pregnant hour, but never more so than this morning, for we are packed so close that if the enemy is apprised of the attack and lays down a barrage, our slaughter must be fearful. For several days he has been nervous, but our jumping-off line has been camouflaged by deliberately destroying his wire far to the north and south. As the rain clears off, the men make shift to get a meal. A tot of rum warms their chilled limbs. Mist still hangs low in the valley, but beyond the outline of the slope can be made out. Officers consult their maps and compasses and get their men to their jumping-off ground. Engineers are there with infantry floats. The men carry scaling ladders. All is ready, but the minutes are interminable. At five o'clock there is a faint flutter of dawn in the east. Just then the enemy starts throwing up twin red balls of fire, the SOS call he used in the Amiens show. But nothing comes of it. At last, at twenty minutes past five of the morning of Friday, September 27, the barrage opens. Some batteries are so close that the noise is stunning. Five minutes later, the men push forward to secure the west side of the canal. The enemy, complete though is his surprise, pours in a heavy shell fire. 
This morning his SOS signal is twin green balls, and soon his entire front line for miles north and south becomes twinkling green. He does not know where the main stroke is to fall. Within a very short time the canal is crossed, our men scaling the locks, bombing as they go, and soon the battle is streaming away up the eastward slopes. Prisoners captured this side of the canal come in at once and testify to the complete surprise. They are from the 63rd Naval Division and the 1st Prussian Guards Reserve Division. Big fellows these, but they do not look so terrible. We had been warned of them, but two days before enemy aircraft had dropped leaflets among our men. Quote, Spare this terrible bloodshed, one read. It is time for peace, Canadians. You will be only slaughtered if you go against our terrible guards. The entire staff of an enemy battery was captured before it had fired a shot. One of our own gunners performed a wonderful exploit. Realizing how essential it was to get the guns up as near the canal as possible, Lieutenant H. H. Finney of the 1st Battery, CFA, made a personal reconnaissance along the canal overnight, and then under cover of darkness took his section of 18-pounders in front even of our outpost line. He lost half his horses and ammunition, but was able, when zero struck, to direct his fire on an enemy machine-gun position across the canal at point-blank range with open sights, destroying it entirely. Canadian engineers now work feverishly constructing bridges, and the work goes forward with a will. Before nine o'clock the first battery crosses the canal. Prior to this, Lieutenant J. A. Davin of the 1st Canadian Divisional Ammunition Column, immediately after zero, and under heavy shell fire, made a reconnaissance of the Canal du Nord in front of Inchy, located a practical crossing, and by his persistence, disregard of danger, and good leadership, took over a column of wagons and established his ARP 1,000 yards east of the canal, where he kept up a much-needed supply of ammunition for the forward batteries until the bridges were built. Since August 8th, in every battle, this officer had thus pushed forward his ammunition dumps into the heart of the fighting. Sergeant Charles Glacier of the 1st Canadian Division Signal Column had the honor of taking the first vehicle over the canal. He established a report center well east of the canal, laying wires under heavy fire to the brigade and batteries. His wireless aerials were shot down three times in half an hour, but on each occasion he re-erected them himself. Our smoke barrage has now blotted out the distant scene. At half-past nine, the tanks come back, their day's work done. About noon, clear above the smoke, a gold and silver shower goes up. It is the signal that Burlong Wood is in our hands. End of Part 3, Chapter 4 Recording by James O'Connor, Randolph, Massachusetts, May 2010